Welcome to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. Later on in this show, we're going to talk about seagrasses and the health of those plants in Tampa Bay. We're also going to hear some statewide news stories. But first up, we're going to talk about performing arts and about a statewide competition for young performing artists with disabilities. My guests are both from Arts for All Florida. You may have heard their public service announcement on WMNF. Joining me live by Zoom right now are their director of programs, Carla Aguayo, and their youth ensemble coordinator, Matt Weimuller. Welcome to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Carla and Matt. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing great. Thanks so much for joining us. So first of all, why don't you, one of you, Matt or Carla, tell us what is Arts for All Florida? I'll start off. Uh, Thank you again for having us. Arts for All Florida is a statewide um, organization. It's a nonprofit that serves students and adults with disabilities. We champion, support, and provide accessible arts programming and cultural experiences for and by people with disabilities. And part of your Arts for All Florida mission here is this Young Performers Program that we're going to be talking about today. So tell us, what what is this Young Performers Program? I can hop in on that one as well. So our Young Performers Program is essentially a statewide uh, recognition and competition where we invite young artists ages 14 to 25 years old with a disability who are Uh, performers in music, dance, or musical theater and drama to apply for this competition. And after an adjudication process, uh, who are judges in their professional fields, uh, we select two winners in each category, and they join us in the youth ensemble. That is the voice of Carla Aguayo, and she's the director of programs at Arts for All Florida. We also have with us the youth ensemble coordinator, Matt Weimuller, and we're on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. We're talking about their Arts for All Florida Young Performers Program and how how people can join it. So, Matt, why don't you tell us in the past what has... What have some of the young performers done? What are some of their performances like? And what are those, uh, the people that are participating, what are they like? Yeah, so it's uh, students with disabilities, as Carla just mentioned, ages 14 to 25. Um, Each uh, performer has been selected through uh, an application process. And uh, they're either in music, theater, or dance and uh, come in, you know, various, you know, uh, walks of life. And um, many of them are, are on the autism spectrum. Some of them are visually impaired, like myself. Um, some of them are deaf or hard of hearing, um, have ASD, Asperger's, etc. Um, and each performer actually lives in a different city. And, and we've been coordinating these virtual video performances that I uh, help coordinate. And what we do is, is I um, compose or arrange rather a, a pop tune uh, arrangement such as uh, One Love by Bob Marley or Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. Uh, we just did the Christmas song kind of in the style of Nat King Cole. And I send the part to each performer who has a different disability and is in that age range between 14 and 25. They record their video, their individual part. I send them a, a written part and an audio track to listen to and read. They record the video, send it back to me, and then I send it to a colleague of mine, Paul Gavin, who uh, helps sync all the videos up, and then we uh, put it up on social media. Carlos uh, been you know absolutely amazing and assisting with that, and uh, 
you know, then the final project is aired, you know, on, on all the arts for all social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, uh, et cetera. And, and, uh, it's been a process. We've done eight videos. Um, I've been, uh, doing it for about, uh, four years in this capacity of the, uh, youth ensemble coordinator, been with the program about eight years since 2014. Um, as I said, I am, am blind. I'm visually impaired. I can't see and play saxophone. And, um, a music instructor here in Florida and, and like I said, kind of fill in as the uh, coordinator for the youth ensemble. And once the performers have been selected through their application process, help, you know, coordinate um, their performances. And they've even uh, participated in several uh, different um, activities and, and uh, different events. We recently had our uh, 40th anniversary celebration from backstage to center stage uh, where four of the uh, young performers were involved uh, a dancer, a couple of music theater people, um, a drummer, and we did uh, run in performers from all over the world who each had a different disability and worked with the students and performed at USF in Miami. And uh, so we had some of the young performers there for that, and they've been uh, performing uh, at various Arts for All events throughout the year. And it's just really been absolutely uh, a, th a thrill to, to watch and learn and, and grow uh, with the you know performers. As I said, each of them have a different disability and getting to know them and work with them and, and understand how they learn and grow and are able to perform um, and how it enriches their life is just really a pleasure. That's the voice of Matt Weidmuller, who is the Youth Ensemble Coordinator with Arts for All Florida. We also have Carla Aguayo, who is the Director of Programs at Arts for All Florida. We're talking about the Young Performers Program that they're putting on. It is a statewide competition for performing artists with disabilities who are aged 14 to 25. And both of you have kind of mentioned that there's an application process. And anyone who's gone through an application process, um, you know, I think that that's a kind of a could be a, a scary prospect for someone. Oh, I'm going to get judged by my performance and uh, I might not make it. And what if they don't like me? But you do have, it sounds like there are some things for, for applicants who are not selected, they still get some benefits. Isn't that right? Yes. So every applicant um, essentially receives a feedback um, critique from a professional in their same field of study. So they are able to still grow um, in their, you know, individual practice and take that feedback and apply it, you know, to their performances, to their practices. And as long as they are, you know, of age up to 25 years old, they can continue applying each year. Uh, we've had a couple of applicants that didn't make it in their first try. And in their second try, they got in. After hearing feedback and, and improving from that feedback, that's that's great news. So Carla and Matt, um, you know, I'm going to ask you this later in the interview as well. But if people are interested in Arts for All Florida, or especially if they're interested in applying for the Young Performers Program, why don't you give them give out the contact information right now? We'll give it out at the end as well. But if, for people who want to find out now. Absolutely. So they can just head to our main website, which is Arts for All dot o-r-g um, and that is spelled a-r-t-s the number four a-l-l-f-l-o-r-i-d-a dot o-r-g and the main banner at the top of the web page is our young performers page so if you click on that it will take you to the main site for the young performers where we expound on what the program is you can also learn about our past winners that way you can get an idea of you know who we are looking for and the caliber of performance that they are able to, you know, provide. 
and then you'll see the application link for all three categories of dance, music, musical theater, and drama. So besides the Young Performers Program, I imagine that some of these artists are so successful that they perform other places besides just Art for All, Arts for All Florida. Uh, where are some other places that, these, that, the, that your students, I think, would have had a chance to perform? I apologize. My dogs are barking. So Matt, if you don't mind uh, taking that one, I'm thinking of somebody like Sarah Hardwick, who was uh, one of our winners two years in a row. Yes. So Sarah Hardwick is a guitarist and uh, is visually impaired. She has a disease called Liebers and she is currently studying music at Belmont uh, University and uh, has performed and is performing currently in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, she recently uh, attended a uh, youth uh, retreat uh, outside of Arts for All uh, with another colleague uh, who was involved in that um, anniversary celebration. I told you about Scott McIntyre. He's another uh, singer, songwriter, pianist who was uh, a former runner-up winner of American Idol some time ago. And uh, he just had a retreat uh, out in Arizona, and they had uh, visually impaired uh, and different students with disabilities. And, and Sarah has really been... Uh, one of our, you know, biggest, brightest stars. Uh, I know she's had a little bit of collaboration with Carrie Underwood and uh, is really, you know, go, studying music in college right now, is learning how to songwrite. And, um, you know, we've had other students as well, uh, you know, at, at like the Disability Arts Alliance Festival perform. And uh, I know one of our students, a drummer named Kevin, he uh, has been doing some stuff with, with Full Sail and has been... Uh, so I'm doing some work and um, just al almost every performer is, is definitely doing, you know, their, their own uh, performance and their own, you know, career outside um, of Arts for All and, you know, really gone on and benefited from the program, I think. That's the voice of Matt Weimler, who is the Youth Ensemble Coordinator with Arts for All Florida. And that's Arts, the number four and then all Florida. And we also have on the Zoom here with us the Director of Programs for Arts for All Florida, Carla Aguayo. And we're talking about their Young Performers Program. It, the, the deadline to apply for that is coming up soon. Tell people where they can go to apply and when the deadline is. Absolutely. So the deadline to apply is Tuesday, January 17th in the new year, 2023. And all you have to do to apply is go to our main website, that is artsforallflorida.org. It's A-R-T-S, the number four, A-L-L-F-L-O-R-I-D-A dot O-R-G. And on the top of the main website, you will find the banner for the Young Performers Program. If you click that, it'll take you to the specific page where we expound on the program and link every application for dance, music, drama, and theater. So there's dance, there's music, there's drama, and there's theater. Uh, Matt explained earlier how we, you put together a music video with people performing remotely, but how would you do that for something like dance or what are the programs like for theater if, if people are participating in this program? Yes, yeah, so uh, very fortunately, many of our drama theater students um, participate as vocalists in these music videos. Uh, so Matt very brilliantly, you know, writes the arrangement again, according to each performer's ability. Uh, so it's very important that when I am sending him the information of, okay, these are the performers that have said they can participate. I give him samples 
Um, if he hasn't met with them before or hasn't worked with them before, I will show him, you know, what their range of, um, you know, vocals are. And so he can write the arrangement for them according to their ability. And for our dancers, it's a little bit fun. They actually get to kind of like choreograph their own piece for the music video. So of course they won't be singing or playing an instrument, but they will interpret the music that Matt writes into a dance piece and we and they videotape themselves. So that's how we allow all of the categories of the Young Performers Program to participate in these music videos. Why is it that you have a program like this for young performers with disabilities? What's the purpose of it? So we used to be, Arts for All Florida used to be an affiliate of the VSA uh, Kennedy Center. Uh, we actually used to be called VSA Florida. And one of the programs that the Kennedy Center um, continues to this day is called the Young Soloist Program. Very similar to ours. Um, it is a competition. It's a national competition, actually. But it was only for uh, musicians, both vocalists and instrumentalists. So when Arts for All Florida, my predecessor, Wendy Finkley uh, and Matt got together and, you know, thought about how best they can serve the Florida community, they decided to also expand the program to include dance and drama theater, to include all of the performing arts and not just music. Um, and Matt, interestingly, when he joined Arts for All Florida and got involved, he unfortunately had already aged out of the age range of the competition. Uh, but Wendy Finkley, my predecessor, and him worked together um, to, you know, essentially expound on the program and find out what is the best way that we can, you know, provide assistance to these students to make sure that they are, you know, continuing in their professional development as artists and make sure that they have a successful career in the arts. So again, where can people find out more about Arts for All Florida Young Performers Program or apply? So on our main website, you'll find us at artsforallflorida.org. That's A-R-T-S, the number four, A-L-L-F-L-O-R-I-D-A dot O-R-G. And on the top of our main website, you will click on the large banner about the Young Performers Program. That will take you to the page for the Young Performers Program when you can, where you can learn more about the program, uh, find out who has won in the last three years and their narratives. And you will also find the three application links for the competition for dance, music, and musical theater and drama. And the dead deadline to apply is upcoming at January 17th. Absolutely. And if I may just add uh, one of my best suggestions for uh, getting ready to apply is to give yourself time. Um, there is a part in the application where each applicant is allowed to expound on the, a narrative about themselves. So it's kind of like an artist statement um, and essentially a bio about who you are, how you came into the arts and what your goals are. Uh, for, you know, if you win this competition, what would you, you know, be able to do if you won this competition? And also we give you the opportunity to send in your best three work samples. So I highly recommend, you know, looking through your YouTube channel or making sure that you have video of your best performances available. And that's what you're going to want to include in that application. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Carla and Matt. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
Thank you for having us. And we hope to see some wonderful applicants in the Tampa Bay area. If anybody has any questions at all, they can get in contact with me. My email is k-a-r-l-a-a at usf edu. All right. Well, thank you so much, Carla and Matt. Carla Aguayo is the Director of Programs with Arts for All Florida, and their Youth Ensemble Coordinator is Matt Weimuller. We're going to turn now to our next guest, and joining us on Zoom right now is going to be Michael Middlebrooks. He is a professor, an associate professor of biology at the University of Tampa, and we're going to talk about seagrasses. Michael was recently awarded a grant by the Tampa Bay Environmental Restoration Fund to study how seagrasses in Tampa Bay are being replaced by macroalgae called cholerpa. So welcome to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Professor Middlebrooks. Thank you, Sean. I'm really glad to talk to you. So um, what can you, before we talk about your grant and your research, let's back things up just a bit. What kind of ecosystem is Tampa Bay and what's the role of seagrasses in Tampa Bay? Sure, so uh, Tampa Bay is an, an estuary, um, which is an ecosystem that is uh, basically where the um, marine systems and freshwater systems uh, join together, where, where, they, where they meet. So we've got, the uh, outflow from primarily the Hillsborough River, but but some other as well, freshwater inputs coming in uh, and mixing with the uh, with the ocean, and that that's hap- uh, the Gulf of Mexico. That's happening within Tampa Bay. So we have a sort of a brackish water system. Um, so the salinity will vary depending on how much rain we have, how much freshwater input there is, um, and then the so, so you get a sort of a, a salinity gradient going from from very up upper parts. Also, full strength seawater at the uh, at the end of it in the opening. So, and and that changing environmental condition uh, affects what what organisms live there. Seagrass has a really important role in this for for a lot of reasons. So, from um, you know from a, a a human standpoint, it's it's a very valuable ecosystem for us to have in terms of shoreline protection. Um, so, so having seagrass means that it it reduces you know what wave energy, so it, it allows the coast to stay intact uh, better. Uh, it's also really important habitat for lots of organisms. So, uh, and a lot of those are commercially important fish or nursery grounds for commercially important uh, fisheries, thing, things like that. It's also really important for us in terms of its role in um, carbon sequestration. So in, you may have heard of blue carbon, which is how the ocean can can store carbon, um, keeping it out of, out of the atmosphere. And one of the ways that can do that that's uh, healthy for the ocean is in, in seagrass. So it can actually store a lot of carbon there. From an ecological standpoint, it's also really important for, uh, for a lot of reasons, pri- primarily as a habitat. So there are a lot of organisms that live in the seagrass. Um, one, one thing that people don't expect is that seagrass is not eaten by most of the organisms that live in there. There are a few things that eat it, and it's very important for them. But most of the animals that live there use it as a, as a as a home. So it's really the structure that it's providing that's really important for for those organisms. 
Our guest is Michael Middlebrooks, Associate Professor of Biology at the University of Tampa, and we're talking about seagrasses. And later on in the interview, we'll talk about a grant that he was awarded by the Tampa Bay Environmental Restoration Fund to study how seagrasses in Tampa Bay are being replaced by a macroalgae called cholerpa. And Michael, you were just talking there about animals that live in the seagrasses and are protected by the habitat of the seagrasses. That includes some juvenile fish as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a lot of uh, a lot of organisms. We use that as a, as a nursery habitat. Um, others live there their their entire lives. So it depends on you know different species. But there there's a, a a very robust ecosystem happening in in seagrass beds. Um, they there, there's a lot of things that really can't live anywhere else. And and for a lot of organisms, that's a really crucial life stage occurs in. Um, and that, and that includes a lot of juvenile fish, including some commercially important ones. And so a few years ago, we had reports, we heard that the seagrasses in Tampa Bay were bouncing back, that they had declined maybe in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, or sometime in that time frame. But then in the around 2010s, they were bouncing back a little bit. Is that changing? How are seagrasses doing in Tampa Bay? Yeah, so... Um, Tampa Bay uh, was and, and to some extent still is a, a really big success story in the world of seagrass. Worldwide, seagrass is declining almost everywhere and, and, and at tremendous levels. Um, it's something around, I think the, the most recent estimate I read worldwide was about 7% per year are dropping off. So it's it's rates similar to the declines we're seeing in coral reefs and um uh, rainforests, uh, places like that, that, that get a lot of attention. Um, but we're, we're seeing similar rates of, of decline. Um, Tampa Bay had some pretty significant declines as well from the 1950s. We estimates are about, uh, 40,000 acres, I think. And then, um, you know, it in the, um, by the early eighties, it had declined to, to, uh, a, a lot less than that. Um, and there's a lot of factors involved. In that, but um, the success in Tampa Bay came from uh, a lot of people working together. Uh, you know, uh, nonprofit organizations, the, the local governments, and, and citizens working to improve uh, the, the basically the water quality in Tampa Bay, and that primarily came about. I mean, there, there was a lot of efforts that went into that. So there was seagrass restoration, but the biggest improvement in, in my opinion, came from managing water quality. So wastewater treatment uh, and things like that. And by improving the water quality, it, it allowed the seagrass to return. And that that's made a huge difference. By 2014, 2015, seagrass had surpassed the historic le- levels in the 1950s that, that had been recorded. So it had not only grown back to previous levels, but was, was further increasing. That that's really good news at a time when that wasn't happening anywhere else. So there, there's a lot of success in Tampa. In the past couple of years, we've we've seen declines again in seagrass. We are still above the the very low levels, and we um, I. I still think that we are a good model for what can be done to improve seagrass quality. Um, but we, we are starting to see declines in that. Um, and so that, that, that is concerning. We don't, we certainly don't want to get back to those levels, uh, the, in the seventies and eighties where there was, um, very low seagrass cover, uh, high amounts of, of, uh, other algae growing in the, uh, 
in Tampa Bay and, and very low water quality. Our guest is Michael Middlebrooks, an associate professor of biology at the University of Tampa, and you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. It's 10:20. It's 10:29 in the morning, I should say, and th- we're talking about seagrasses and the health of seagrasses in Tampa Bay. So you mentioned water quality and what an important component that is of, of healthy seagrasses. I, I might throw you a curve here and ask you what's become a political question in the city of Tampa, and that is what to do with the millions and millions of gallons of treated seawater, sorry, treated um, wastewater that is that goes into Tampa Bay right now. Uh, the city wants to do something that opponents have called toilet to tap. The city calls it pure. That's, you know, maybe pumping it back into the aquifer is one of the options. Or what should we, what should happen with all of that treated wastewater that it goes into Tampa Bay? I mean, it, the bay needs fresh water, but it probably doesn't need all the pollutants that are in, in that water. Yeah, and that that is a difficult question, and I, I'm probably not the most qualified person to answer that one, but I, I'll, I'll do my best for that. Um, my, uh, when you say the, the pollutants going in there, I, uh, the, the, the real concern from, from my perspective and, and for, if we're focusing on seagrass is the nutrients that are, that are in that, that water. So it's primarily, and, uh, um, you know, adding in the extra, basically the same stuff that you would, you would add to fertilize plants, right? We, and, while seagrass is a plant and and needs nutrients, it doesn't having that many nutrients in the water uh, causes its competitors, little microalgae in the water, to to really grow faster. So they're you know you can sort of think of them like weeds. They grow very quickly when that happens. And these these are um, primarily the ones we're concerned about are are little planktonic organisms. But there there are some that do grow directly on the seagrass as well. When they grow too quickly it blocks the light from getting to the seagrass and the seagrass doesn't grow. So whatever solution we come up with, we um, reducing the amount of nutrients that goes into Tampa Bay needs to be part of that. Um, otherwise, we're going to lose the seagrass and um, we're, we're going to have very low water quality in the bay. And that's going to mean, uh, you know, the reduced uh, ability for people to fish recreationally, uh, or reduce desire to, to spend time, you know, in, in any recreational capacity on the bay. It's going to reduce tourism. It's going to, um, reduce the quality of, of life for anybody who lives near the, uh, near the water. Um, and it's, uh, has a lot of other compounding effects. So any solution that they come up with really does need to involve reducing the, that nutrient input. You've mentioned how seagrasses had really bounced back in Tampa Bay, but how are they doing in other parts of the state? We hear all the time about the Indian River Lagoon and the seagrass die-off there. That's led to uh, a lot of problems there on the east coast of Florida. How about Florida Bay uh, down down south of the Everglades? How about seagrasses uh, near the Florida Keys? Where else are seagrasses doing well, and where else are they struggling and why? So... Mm. I don't know about specific other locations in, in Florida. My, my uh, area of research really is T- Tampa Bay for, for this uh, in, in terms of seagrass. But on average, worldwide seagrass is declining. And, and, and the east coast of Florida is an area that's been hit pretty badly uh, recently. Uh, th- there are still places with seagrass. I, I don't think it's too late anywhere 
to take action. Um, but some places it will be harder than others. When there's no seagrass left, it can be very difficult to to reestablish. Um, seagrass is a is a plant, um, and uh, I, I should also say that there are m- multiple species of seagrass, and they are um, while they are functionally quite similar in, in what they do in an ecosystem, the way they grow is not all the same. So some of them um, can be restored to an area through seeds, um, but most of them require, to, uh, they're, they're, you know, they grow like a, a, a grass. They're not, not a true grass, but they grow in a similar manner. So they, they grow out from the, from the main plant. So if you don't have an established colony there, it's very difficult to, to reestablish that. So, um, you know, efforts on protecting what's left are really important to 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 regrow it. There 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 is some success in some instances of replanting seagrass beds, and that that has been successful in a number of areas. That only works if the conditions are are also improved, though, right? You can't put seagrass into an area where there's not enough light hitting it because there's so much uh, microalgae in the water that won't it won't be successful, no matter how healthy the plant you put in was, and it and need, needs good conditions. So, it, um. Well, but to get more at your question, you know, worldwide we're, we're seeing big declines, and and there are a handful of areas that have shown some local success, but it it takes a, a lot of effort to maintain that um, to to really keep the water quality up and um, and and keep um, you know keep that in check as populations grow, right? You know, a water management system that does well uh, a decade ago may not work today. Our guest is Michael Middlebrooks, Associate Professor of Biology at the University of Tampa. He was recently awarded a grant by the Tampa Bay Environmental Restoration Fund to study how seagrasses in Tampa Bay are being replaced by macroalgae called Calerpa. So let's talk now on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe about that study. It will involve UT students as well as yourself. What what will you be doing during this study? Sure. So we've got a couple components to the study. The the first one... um, uh, a little more background on this. So as some of the seagrass in Tampa Bay has declined, uh, in some of those areas, we are seeing it be replaced by uh, a, a macroalgae called Calerpa. So if uh, to the untrained eye, Calerpa looks like a seagrass. Um, it it uh, is sort of similarly shaped and it, and it can grow in sort of a similar pattern. There, there are multiple species of Calerpa as well. The one that we're looking at here um, grows in, in a similar fashion to seagrass and it grows along the, the ocean floor. Um, so it, and it has sort of these um, uh, leaf-like bl- uh, blades on it. They're not true leaves. Um, it's, it's, it's actually an algae, not a, not a true plant, um, but it's growing in some of these areas. And the first part of our study is to look at how um, Calerpa serves as a habitat for all those organisms that we were talking about uh, previously. So all of the the animals, particularly, we're, we're really interested in, in this case in some of the very uh, small animals that are living in this this habitat. So some of the the um, ones maybe a little bit lower down the food chain that um, that use that as a primary habitat for their whole lives. So we're we're looking at the invertebrate animals and going to compare them uh, between the 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 Calerpa habitat and the the um, uh, one of our species of seagrass uh, to see if they're providing a similar um, ecosystem for, for these organisms. Um, and this is important, can tell us a lot about what 
uh, is happening further on. If we, if we have a very similar community uh, of, of organisms growing in these systems, then that can tell us that this Calerpa can be a sort of a functionally equivalent. If they're very different, however, this could mean that you know we're, we're seeing a, a big change in, in the ecosystems. Um, that Calerpa being there is not necessarily bad. It might, in fact, be good in the in the short term for us because it will help stabilize some of the sediment. It might provide a, a habitat for a lot of these organisms. Um, but we we don't know this uh, how equivalent this is in, until we measure it. Do the Calerpa and seagrasses actually compete for resources or compete for space? So there, there is some competition for space. Um, typically, what will happen though is um, in a in a very healthy system, um, you will see one of one of two things. Uh, the Calerpa will go into an area first, and eventually the seagrass will outcompete it. The seagrass is a, a stronger competitor. Um, you can sort of think of it like comparing weeds to a to a forest. Right, the seagrass once it's established is is better at holding its ground there. Um, the other thing that you can see in some healthy systems is a, a sort of a mixed habitat where you'll get a little bit of calerpa mixed in with with some of the seagrass, but it's not not dominant now. Right now, in some of these areas that used to be primarily seagrass, we have a, a very high coverage of calerpa. Um, and I did some scouting the other day, and we we basically had no. Um, seagrass in some of these areas that had 100% cover of the Calerpa. So there's a, there's a lot of it in there. Um, but I, it, it could be easier if seagrass recovers for it to, to move into those areas occupied by Calerpa. I want to ask you right now about water flow in Tampa Bay. Uh, before construction began on the new span of the Howard Franklin's Bridge, I was at a St. Peter's St. Pete City Council workshop, and there was a professor from Eckerd College there that told St. Pete City Council that he was recommending that there be breaks constructed in the existing causeway of the Howard Franklin Bridge and uh, possibly in the Courtney Campbell as well, if, if my memory is a little fuzzy. But so the purpose of constructing these breaks would be so that there could be better water flow into and out of Upper Tampa Bay. Those breaks never happened. That wasn't part of the construction, but in maybe even worse news perhaps is that acres and acres of the floor of Tampa Bay have now been filled in to create additional causeway that's adjacent to that new span of the Howard Franklin. So what can you tell us about um, water flow and how that what that has to do with healthy seagrasses? And I don't know if that links at all to the study that you're doing. So we don't have a direct link to this, but it, it certainly can have an impact on, on that. We, we've been talking so far about the, the trouble with nutrients, and this can compound some of those troubles. If you don't have, uh, in an estuary, if you don't have regular flushing of, of that, right, the nutrients that are coming from the land, right, from the rivers uh, and, and from rainfall, if that builds up, and, and any other inputs that we have, if that builds up in Tampa Bay and does not disperse further, you're going to have a, a big increase in those nutrients. Um, you can also have a big increase in silt um, from, from heavy rainfalls and things like that. Again, doesn't get the opportunity to flush out into the Gulf of Mexico. All of those things are reducing the, um, the water quality and they're reducing uh, how much light penetrates through the, um, 
through the water to, to get to the seagrass. So those issues can, can cause a big deal. Construction, uh, of course, mer- marine construction is also going to cause some, some silting as well. So, you know, I think it would be expected to see some of that occurring, uh, dur- during periods of construction. Um, by making breaks, uh, you could improve, improve the hydrodynamic flow, uh, and manage that. Um, that, I don't know the specific hydrodynamics behind that, um, but yeah, that that is something that probably should be considered um, to to improve our water quality in the bay is is keeping those flows flows happening. Our guest is Michael Middlebrooks, an associate professor of biology at the University of Tampa, and we're talking about his research on seagrasses in Tampa Bay and their competition from the algae Calerpa. Well, we have a, a caller in, uh, who is on the line. I'm going to try to get to in just a second. Oh, caller dropped off, might be calling back in. But in the meantime, let me ask you, Mike, what what is the Tampa Bay Environmental Restoration Fund? That's where you got this grant to study, to do this study. So tell us what that group is. Sure. So uh, the Tampa Bay uh, um, Environmental Restoration Fund is a, uh, it's a competitive grant um that is uh administered by the um uh Tampa bay estuary program uh so the the funding comes from private donors and, and public the public sector and so these are uh projects that cover a wide variety of different uh aspects so they can be uh things like uh science uh d- data gathering like we're doing now they can be restoration projects they can be um uh, community education projects. So, so th- these grants are awarded to a, a lot of different groups and, and individuals to do things to help improve the um, the the quality of our of our estuary um, in, in, through a variety of different uh, mechanisms. Um, it's a it's a very good program. Um, it's it's uh, organized and managed uh, very well. And one of the things that I'm uh, quite pleased about working with them is they they operate under a uh, system of open science. So all of the data that we're collecting, all the information that we learn from that is going to be publicly available. When will your research be complete and analyzed? And when will we kind of have an idea of what you find out about Calerpa and seagrasses and how they're competing for uh, resources in the Tampa Bay? So uh, this this is a three-year project. So it's going to take us uh, quite a while to get to get all of the data, but part of the open science principles are that as we collect data, it will be uh, it will be available. So, um, but the the final project will be done in about three years, um, and uh, hopefully at, at that time we'll be um, right you know writing a scientific manuscript about it and, and formalizing all of our results. But um, as as we learn things and as we complete different phases of this project, that that data will start to become available. And if people want to find out about more about you or about your lab or about your research or this project specifically, where can they go to find out? So if you want to learn more about uh, things going on with, with seagrass projects in particular, I say the Tampa Bay Estuary Programs website is a, is a good place to start for that. Um, my, uh, my other uh, sort of research outreach stuff is actually focused on the other aspects of, of my research. So I don't have a lot on this currently, but uh, it'll start to, to 
go on there some as, as we do more. Um, but I have a, an Instagram page about my research lab called uh, Tampa Slug Life. I primarily research uh, sea slugs uh, is what, what I've done for a lot of my projects. And I still have uh, sea, uh, sea slug projects going on. Um, so that is uh, my, my Instagram page is probably the, the best place to see um, fun science-related things related to my lab. So there'll start to be some seagrass stuff on there soon as we start getting pictures out in the field and, and doing some of that, maybe, maybe as soon as this week. Uh, right now, it's mostly things about, about my sea slug research. And we have a question that, that's coming in from Sid in Tampa who wants to ask about cholerpa and seagrass in Tampa Bay. Hi, hi Sid. Hi. Let me first preface my question that overall, seagrass has increased in Tampa Bay since the 70s, the 80s, due to much better nitrogen management. But apparently, I've heard in the last couple of years, there's been some decline in seagrass coverage in parts of Tampa Bay. My question for the professor is, is does nutrient enrichment favor or not favor Calerpa uh, versus seagrass? Or does Calerpa grow well in nutrient-poor environments? Or does eutrophication or nutrient enrichment favor cholerpa over seagrass? Thanks for the question. That's an excellent question. Um, I think that cholerpa grows faster in high nutrients than seagrass does. Um, so it probably, this probably gives them uh, the cholerpa a bit of an advantage here with that, that increase in nutrients. Um, a high enough increase in nutrients would probably also be detrimental to the calerpa because uh, the, the microalgaes will uh, outcompete that eventually, or they'll, they'll block out the light from getting to it as well. It's still a marine plant and needs um, needs light, but calerpa uh, species in general are fairly good at uh, extracting nutrients from 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 the water. Uh, a lot of them do live in fairly nutrient poor conditions, though, so I think they're they're fairly versatile in what they can survive in, but they do grow quite quickly when nutrients are available. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for the question. Sure, bye. Thanks for the question, Sid. And uh, we have another person who writes in and asks about, you were mentioning the microalgae outcompeting when there's high nutrients. Does that apply to red tide? Is the, the red tide microorganism outcompeting seagrasses in high nutrients? Does, is, what happens, I guess, maybe to seagrasses during a red tide? So, yeah, red, red tide is also a, um, th well, that's a, another complicated uh, phenomenon. Um, but yes, uh, high amounts of red tide can, can, can cause, uh, light to not penetrate deep enough for the seagrass. Uh, in addition to the other problems that red tide blooms can, can have, I mean, they, they are toxic to a lot of marine life. And so they're, they're causing a, a myriad of issues. Um, nutrient input does have an impact on red tide, but it's not, um, it is more complicated than just that. There, there's a lot of other environmental factors there as well. Um, so, but yeah, new, there, there are some nutrient limitations that that uh, can stop a red tide bloom from occurring. Um, that, you know, the organism that causes that is naturally part of our environment. Um, so some of it there is not a bad thing. It's when, the, when there's, there's too much. And that uh, an increase in nutrients can be one of the things that contributes to that. It's not the only thing. There, there's, this is a, very complicated ecosystem, but that, that is one to be concerned about. Yeah, that's a good question as well. Yeah, thanks for those questions. And I want to thank you so much for coming on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Professor Middlebrooks. Thank you very much for having me. 
Thanks for coming on. Michael Middlebrooks is Associate Professor of Biology at the University of Tampa. And you can watch this full interview beginning this afternoon. It'll be on our website, WMNF.org. I want to turn now to some stories from around Florida. There's a story here about how Hurricane Ian may end up exacerbating the housing crisis in southwest Florida. In fact, it may even kick out residents of an RV camp in Bonita Springs. WGCU's Eileen Kelly reports that many people have called the Gulf Coast Camping Resort a seasonal or full-time home for years. But three months after landfall, lives are being upended, possibly in the name of rehousing victims from the storm. Young men ride around in a golf cart, ticking off names and addresses of people who call the newly purchased camping resort home. There are 261 lots with RV-style campers and mobile homes, some that haven't moved from the Gulf Coast camping resort in decades. The workers are asking if they can buy 80 or so lots that are owned. The renters are facing even more pressing issues under new ownership. They are being told to get out and that their homes will be demolished. Exactly why the lots are being cleared is up for debate. Resident Dwayne Galding says the new land manager, Ralph Principi, told him he wants the lots cleared to make room for a five-star resort. Galding says he's also spoken to a surveyor from FEMA, who he says told him FEMA would pay Principi much more than the residents do. I looked at that guy in the eyes and I said, Ralph, how do you sleep at night and how do you think this is ethical of what you're doing to elderly people? One of these people could be your mother or grandmother, or father, or grandfather, and he responded to me, quote, unquote, I have a business, and I don't care about people. Many of the residents are elderly. Many have limited means. Some are disabled. Many have prepaid their rent until the end of the season, but are still being asked to pay monthly now. Even after paying, these renters are being told they need to vacate the property by December 31st. Merry Christmas to you, and Happy New Year to you. I mean, where are we going to go? I mean, this is the worst Christmas I ever had in my life. That's Peter Rosignol. He lives in a camper. He moved here eight months ago. He pays monthly. He's asked if he can stay through April when other mobile home and RV lots may have room for him. He's been told no. Florida law gives protection to people who reside in mobile homes within a designated mobile home community, more so than people like Rosignol who live in a fifth wheel or RV. Because they are both on the property, it will make for an interesting legal argument, and there are expected to be legal showdowns with those residents willing to fight. Regardless, the matter is upsetting to residents like Barbara Clark. I've been sick since this happened. I have multiple sclerosis. My stress level is just to the max. New owners took possession of the park at the end of October. Within days, some renters learned that they would be steep increases starting November 1st. After paying the rent, they are getting notices to vacate the property. Here's Golding again. This is a whole scary thing. I told the gentleman, congratulations on buying the park. I look forward to coming down supporting your place. There must be some kind of misunderstanding. Here's my rent, my receipt, where I paid on QuickBooks. He goes, first of all, I didn't buy the business. I bought the land, and I want you off my land. Principi says he's following Florida state statutes. Attorneys could argue he is not. Although they fear Principi will retaliate, many residents say they have nothing to lose by talking to WGCU News. Most are clearly terrified of what the future holds. Those with means to move on are deeply troubled by what's going on to the elderly and disabled. Here's Barbara Clark again. What happens if I can't get out? You know, I'm disabled. I'm trying to find a place. There's nothing here. I'm looking north. I'm trying to find a place. He was like, you're out. That's it. I didn't put you in this position. You put yourself in this position. 
by renting. Clark is on Social Security Disability because she has multiple sclerosis. She said she wasn't able to pay her bills last month so that she can try and stay in the place that she has called home since 2015. I didn't pay any bills so that I would have the money for December so that I would be at least be safe for this month. A family member of Clark's is helping her find a place up north to stay, but is not allowing her to bring her nine-year-old Labrador Retriever mix. It's killing me. I'm so upset about having to get rid of him. Others, like Mike Carlos, feel just as helpless. I can't move my trailer. Tires are all rotted underneath and flattened. They're telling me that I've got two weeks to move all my stuff out, and what's left, they're going to come in and crush up into pieces. John Potts used to divide his time between living in the RV mobile home park and living with his son in Chicago. Not long after arriving back in Florida in early November, his son died of a massive heart attack. Potts, who is 80, hoped to live out the rest of his days at Gulf Coast Camping Resort. Like others, he's being told to get out. I'll be 81 Christmas Day, and this is what I've got to go through now. I mean, they're not very nice to people in the park. Michelle Trunkett, an attorney and manager with Florida Rural Legal Services, said she and other attorneys have been discussing the rights of mobile home and RV residents from around the area. She said many have contacted her office because they fear they are going to be displaced so that FEMA trailers can move on to their lots that they are renting. I can tell you that we've been having ongoing discussions in our office with all the housing lawyers about whether we think each park has certain protections. A spokeswoman from FEMA confirmed it has been on the property to survey the lot, but at the moment FEMA does not have a business deal with Gulf Coast Camping Resort. It's not lost on any of the residents like Rosino that WGCU has spoken with who say if FEMA comes in to help those displaced by the hurricane, it will in turn displace them. They said they're going to bring FEMA trailers in here and they're going to displace us. So we're going to be out on the street with no place to go. I've checked every RV park around here and they're all full because it's season. Florida Rural Legal Services can only intervene if people ask it to and if the person qualifies. The number to call is 239-334-4554. I'm Eileen Kelly with Andrea Melendez in Bonita Springs. Well, I want to thank WGCU for that report about people displaced in Southwest Florida after Hurricane Ian and uh, the displacement, especially by renters, people who live in RVs when their property is, when the property they live on is sold. Very uh, important story there. So I wanted to play it for you. Here's another one that has to do with politics in the Republican Party. After a run of successes, the Republican Party of Florida is looking for a new leader. Outgoing party chair Joe Gruders will leave early next year to run for treasurer of the Republican National Committee. Now two high-powered leaders of the state GOP are vying to succeed Gruders and to wipe out what's left of the Florida Democrats. Here's the report from Margie Menzel. The two candidates in the race so far are Sarasota County State Committee Man Christian Ziegler and Leon County GOP Chair Evan Power. They're both proud of how the state party has performed in recent years, commanding the governor's mansion, legislature, and cabinet. Here's Ziegler. Uh, we've absolutely crushed the Democrats in voter registration. Um, back in 2008, I think there were 650,000 more Democrats than Republicans in Florida. Now we're at over 300,000 more Republicans than Democrats in Florida. So we've had almost a million voter registration, a million voters swing towards the Republican side. That's incredible. Governor DeSantis winning by almost 20 points is incredible. Power led the GOP to substantial victories in traditionally blue Leon County, increasing Republican turnout from year to year. And at the, at the same time, we've depressed some of their turnout because they've become more radical. And so what we've done is turned out Republicans at a, at a historically high rate, and they've not been as successful. And we're able to flip a 
state senate seat and a school board seat we we're also able as a local party to outraise the democratic party two to one which i don't think can be over explained on how successful that was in helping us send our message out to the voters but both candidates eye the map of Florida and see Democrats still in office. In addition to having been a Sarasota County Commissioner, Ziegler has been the statewide party's vice chair. He says Democrats are promoting the breakdown of the family. There's still some Democrats in both the House, the State House and the State Senate. Uh, they need to be defeated. They need to be out of office. Um, you go around the state and you see in these local communities, whether they're, it's at the school board level or the city commission level or the county commission level, and um, the Democrats there are trying to um, really impose a leftist agenda on citizens in Florida until they're all out of office. Our work is not done. Power has chaired the Leon County Republican Party for eight years and has been the state party's chairman of chairs for four years. He acknowledges that statewide the party is in a very strong position, but wants to focus on winning more city and county commission seats. I think if you look across the state, there's a lot of places. You look in Tampa, where we were extremely successful in the last election. There is a city council there and a, and a mayor there that is not in line with our agenda. So you have Jacksonville, you have Tampa, you have Miami, you have those areas where we've been successful, that we need to continue to deliver Republican leaders and get some people elected in Tampa and Miami that can kind of change the trajectory there. What more could a party leader do to build on the recent record of Florida Republicans? Here's power. I think we obviously need to have a strong performance in a presidential race to re return a president to the White House. And also on county and cities, I think there are a lot of work there's a lot of work to do there to elect some strong Republicans to lead some counties and in some cities where we see some Democrats kind of trying to set an agenda that's a little more progressive. And we need to fight on those, th those levels so that we can be competitive and build a bench long term. Ziegler says he wants to make the state more ruby red. And, uh, you know, protect the state not just for ourselves, but for the next generation. And, uh, you know, it's almost like NASCAR. I mean, I don't want to just win. I don't want to get to the finish line before them. I actually want to lap them a couple times. Um, so that's my focus, and that's my passion. And that's what we're going to do. If I become chairman, I'm going to be a very aggressive, hands-on you know, chairman. I'm going to do this nonstop, and we're going to continue to crush the Democrats in Florida. So far, Power and Ziegler are the only two candidates in the race. The election is in February. I'm Margie Menzel. Well, thanks to Margie Menzel for that report out of Tallahassee. And I want to thank my phone screener, John Dunn. Thanks so much for wrangling the phones there. And I want to thank my guests, Michael Middlebrooks, a professor at University of Tampa, and also from Arts for All Florida, Matt Weimuller and Carla Aguayo. You've been listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We'll be back next Tuesday at 10. If you like the programming here on 88.5 FM, please consider making a year-end donation at WMNF.org. I want to thank everyone who donated during our membership drive in October. In this time slot tomorrow, Shelly will host Midpoint. Coming up next is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. They'll continue the discussion about the burgeoning Tampa Bay arts scene. Their guests are Michelle Smith, Executive Director of the Tampa Arts Alliance, and Tracy Medulla, who recently reopened Tempest Projects in Ybor City. That's coming up after NPR News headlines. You're listening to WMNF Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, and Lakeland. Thanks so much for listening to Community Radio and for supporting 88.5 FM.